Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation, but it's not a coronation you'd expect because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect. This morning's sermon text is from Mark chapter eight, verses one through 26. In those days, when again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmatheno. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethesda, 
And some of the people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led them out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on them, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness towards us and calling us yours and bringing us from death to life spiritually uh, in lavishing grace and mercy on us. Uh, Father, I pray now as we uh, sit under your word, as Mason teaches it, as your spirit moves amongst us, God, I pray that our hearts and our minds be opened and focused um, on the truth of the gospel, on the truth of your word from Mark 8, uh, and that we would be sharpened together uh, to look more like your son, uh, to grow in holiness and to follow you more closely. Father, I pray that we do follow you more closely, and I pray that we do that in, the, the whole, in a whole host of ways, uh, one of which now as we begin to give, I pray that we follow you closely with our tithes and our offerings and with how we steward our resources, that we steward all things um, at this time, that we steward our money for your glory. But Lord, I pray that that just flows over into the rest of our lives, that we steward all things, our time, um, our, our bodies, everything. We steward it all for your glory because we know that you have given it to us for our good and for your glory. And I pray that that truth, that you have given us money, that you've given it to us for your glory and for our good, I pray, Lord, that that would overwhelm us and that we would give freely and joyously. Uh, Father, I pray for the rest of the service uh, that it glorifies you and that we are molded into the image of your Son. We love you. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Res kids, you guys are dismissed. Uh, Ushers, you guys may come forward to receive our offering. Uh, I don't have any really big announcements this morning, like I did last week with the, the theater and all that. Um, but congratulations to the Marshall Thundering Herd. Joyce has been waiting, and I'm sure others have been waiting for, for years now for me to say congratulations to the herd. Because those are two words I usually don't ever put back to back. Because they never need to be put back to back, right, Joyce? Oh. But to make up for that, I'm wearing green and white and black just for, just for you guys. So I didn't even know I owned green, but I found it. So. Um, we are this morning, uh, we read sort of 1 through 11 for context, but we're going to be uh, in verses 11 through 26 primarily, and we're going to be dealing with issues of blindness, uh, issues of spiritual blindness predominantly, uh, but as we see at the end of the passage today, also issues of physical blindness. And in fact, the Lord uses this um, issue of physical blindness at the end of our passage today to sort of be representative of the spiritual journey that one may take from, uh, from blindness to sight. And really this morning, I have good news for people um, who get distracted by earthly things. Uh, am I, I don't know, I might be the only one, but I, I can tend to get distracted by earthly things. Some of those things are good things, uh, some of those things are bad things, but nonetheless, they're distracting things. If you are like me, one who has a tendency to get distracted by earthly things, and I have um, good news for you this morning. I have good news also for people who tend to live life carnally, and I don't necessarily mean that only sinfully. I have good news for people who, let's just say, struggle to live spiritually. I have good news this morning for people who struggle to live spiritually. Um, taking on the theater 
in this season of our church's life, we now are like a, um, we're not a, really a big church, we're not really a tiny church anymore, we're kind of at that like hundred person sort of, okay, we're growing out of being a small church, but we're not yet this, this big church, and one of the biggest challenges of that is um, running two facilities with a whole lot of people who, who use them that, that aren't just us, and, and I can feel like throughout the week this week, I was just like, man, I feel like a landlord, like I feel like just a, a project manager, but the Lord used that to, to remind me that I, as well as all of us, can get sort of wrapped up in tasks as this sort of project manager, and for at least a moment, I finally felt like many of you feel at work every single week. Usually I have the luxury of getting to, you know, read the Bible at my leisure, and uh, my job is in some ways really hard, but in some ways it's really not hard at all. Um, and so the beautiful thing is I get to live in that tension, but, but this week I got to kind of get a window into how many of you may feel uh, in your jobs every day. And I realized that I could hypothetically do a great job, hypothetically I could do a great job with it, Hypothetically, I could do a great job and, and manage all of these projects well. But even if I did that, and if Christ isn't working in your heart, it's all really kind of pointless. If we're not aware of why we're doing what we're doing, right, then we seem to miss the point. I could get you to play music on stage. I could get you to be a volunteer. I could get you to eventually do things here or at the theater or um, with Risen City Church, or with Resurrection Church, or, or whatever that may be. Um, but if you don't like, get off the stage and love your brother who disagrees with you, if you don't get off the stage and show growth and humility and kindness, then, 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 then we're just clanging gongs, as the scriptures would say. I have good news for people then who, like me this week, and like you, I'm sure, many weeks as well, struggle to understand that, that we need to set our eyes not just on the physical things, but the scriptures teach us to set our eyes on the things that are above, to set our eyes on the spiritual things, that we may know what God is doing, or at least join God in what he's doing, even when we don't fully know. I have good news also for people who don't have always a ton of faith. I have good news for people like you and like me who have experienced God's grace in the past but struggle so mightily to believe that they'll experience His grace one day in the future. For all of you, all of us, doubt-filled, often non-spiritual people, we get this morning the privilege to approach God's Word together. The good news for you if you get distracted by earthly things, the good news for you if you struggle to live spiritually, the good news for you if you seem to miss the point of what God's doing in your life. The good news for you if you seem to lack faith in many respects is simple. Jesus can overcome all of it. He can overcome our doubt. He can overcome our flesh. And I pray that this morning we would look to his word and see him in power and glory. I've said throughout the entire series, and it really comes into focus today, there's a relationship between the heart and the eye. There's a relationship between the heart and the eye, the things that we believe, the convictions that we hold, and the things that we see and things that we believe. My prayer this morning for myself, for you, and for all of us on this spring ahead morning where you just lose that hour of sleep is that God would still even in the midst of maybe our tiredness, raise up hearts of faith to see him in power and grace. Lord, have your way among us. Let's look in verse 11. Really, this sermon text is going to be divided into three basic parts this morning. Verses 11 through 13, we're going to see hard hearts and blind eyes. 
Verses 11 through 13, we'll see hard hearts and blind eyes. Then verses 14 through 21, we're going to kind of challenge each other to watch out for unbelief. And then finally, in verses 22 to 26, we're going to see the process by which sight comes. Now, verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. That's, you know, that's shocking. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Things are beginning, at least, to come to a tipping point in Mark's narrative. We've talked about three major groups of people who I wanted from the outset us to keep our eyes on and see what we can glean spiritually from them as we go through the book. One of those groups was the crowds, how they follow Christ, and this sort of seemed to be this like herd of, of cats just kind of following him around, and um, you're just kind of not sure where they, where they stand. They seem pretty fickle. Uh, and then we see the disciples, who we'll see in this text, and just like they always seem to be portrayed by Mark, they are uh, confused. And I think the text today, Jason was reading it, and when, when we read it um, and really are deliberate on it, I think it's, it's just kind of funny again. Like, it, it's funny to see how um, Jesus is talking spiritually, they think he's talking physically, and there's sort of this, like, comedic moment. And the disciples are like you and I. Um, it's almost funny how sometimes we don't get what God's doing in our lives. And then finally, the third group is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, uh, wherever they may be. So they are approaching Jesus in this text. The, the, the passage sort of begins out of nowhere. Uh, we don't know necessarily exactly when or where in relation to the narrative this happens. We finish the story about Jesus feeding 4,000 more people. A separate story. Sounds like the same. Some liberal scholars are going to say it is the same. Uh, it's not, and we'll talk about why it's not uh, in a little bit. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, if you've read the Bible a lot, you know, John uh, calls miracles signs because those miracles uh, point to something, that Jesus does miracles not to be this sort of magic medicine man, but Jesus does miracles to sort of uh, bring messianic certainty, at least to some degree, that people would know that he is the Messiah, that they would know who he is. And so when the Pharisees are requesting a sign, they are sort of coming into this Old Testament tradition that a prophet would be accompanied with signs. But here's sort of the great paradox, the great sort of comedy underlying that. Jesus has been doing signs like nonstop. Right, Jesus has been healing people, he's been giving sight to blind people, he's resurrected someone, he's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been making plain in some ways, in some ways cloaking all of the, these messages. And so they have plenty of opportunities to see who he is, to hear who he is, and respond who he is. So they're not really looking for a miracle because he's already done several. They think his miracles are ambiguous, right? They think his miracles are not coming from uh, God's power, but they think his miracles are coming from uh, worldly power. Worse than that, they think his miracles are coming from demonic power. So when they're coming to Christ, it's so important to note that they're not coming with an open heart. They're not coming with a heart of faith. They're coming with a heart that's looking to condemn Christ. They're coming with a heart that's looking to say, look, um, you are demonic, and we are kind of just we're just trying to get you to, to verify that. They want to know if he's trustworthy, not necessarily if he's powerful. They already know he's powerful, but their intentions and in even trying to discern if he's trustworthy are very, very far from pure. 
Because underneath their testing of Jesus is a firm prior conviction that he is bad news. Underneath their testing of Jesus is a firm prior conviction that he is bad news. It is one thing to test the Lord in faith, and it is quite another thing to test the Lord in disbelief. The Pharisees would never let the facts get in the way of their worldview. You know, we're, we're not that different from the Pharisees in this respect, I don't think. In a room of this size, there are many of you who are Christians, and surely there are some of you who are not Christians. And I think verses 11 through 13, these hard hearts and blind eyes, are most representative of those of us, or those of you who may not be um, Christians. I think like the Pharisees, we all come to Christ with our own presuppositions. Like the Pharisees, we come to Christ with our own presuppositions. For instance, a lot of scholars will come to the Bible with an anti-supernatural presupposition. What's that mean? All that means is that they'll come to the Bible and they'll say miracles can't happen. Like water can't be turned into wine. People who are dead cannot come back to life. And these are the laws of nature, which I know, right, in, their, in my mind empirically. Therefore, anything that the scriptures say that are going to touch on any of these topics, what am I going to do with those? Well, I'm going to just allegorize them. I'm going to make it a metaphor. I'm going to make it an allegory. And so then what they've done with the Bible is they've said, you know what, Bible? Um, I'm going to let you sit under my authority. So they're commitment, that's just one example, their commitment of the anti-supernatural, their commitment to the um, very rational, very physical, in sort of um, affects the way they interpret the Bible. But it does more than just affect the way they interpret the Bible, because the way that we interpret the Bible affects how we understand God, and how we understand God affects our entire being, and it affects our entire being for all of eternity. So what you get at that point when your presuppositions are superseding the Bible is sort of your own worldview where in your mind God is sort of only visible through the lens of whatever presupposition you may bring to the text. And instead of a Jesus who raises dead people, you get a Jesus who is a liar because he says he raises dead people who doesn't. Or you get a Jesus who only does things metaphorically. And his purpose isn't to be the Lord of death, but his purpose is to be a cute little teacher who you can add to your pantheon of people who give you advice on how to live your life. Perhaps if you are a Christian, but especially if you're not a Christian, I ask you this morning, what presuppositions, what do you hold to firmly even before you consider Christianity? Are there ideologies or beliefs that you hold more dear than the gospel? Or is the gospel of Christ the foundation of your reality? Is he the firm foundation from which you begin to construct the edifice of your worldview? Or is something else there? I can't tell you enough. It is crucial. It is crucial to give Christ authority for God to be the lens through which we understand reality. Webster's Dictionary does not define reality. That's why I hate, you know, you go to so many country churches and the preacher always begins with miracle. Webster's defines miracle. It's like Webster's is great and it's helpful in many ways, but, but Webster's is not our authority, right? We know what justice is, not because of the way societies define justice, but we know what justice is because we know who God is. 
And so if we're going to rightly interpret justice, if we're going to rightly interpret mercy, if we're going to rightly interpret love, we can't start with this amorphous, broad definition that we've just kind of created as a um, sort of artifact of our culture. But we have to start with the fount of justice, the fount of mercy, and the fount of love. That's the triune God of the Bible himself. Jesus, the text says what? Sighed deeply in his spirit. More than just Jesus rolled his eyes, right? <laughs> and Jesus groaned, oh my God, these Pharisees. That's what I would do. I'd be like, man, these Pharisees are always just driving me nuts. But he sighs deeply in his spirit. There's a hint of indignation, of righteous indignation. There's a, there's a hint of grief. Here's Jesus. Here's God in the flesh. Here's God with us. And these hard hearts are unable to see him because they refuse to see Their eyes can't see what their hearts won't see. And because they are firmly committed to Jesus being the bad guy, their eyes can't see him for who he plainly is. Jesus sighs deeply. They've simultaneously invoked a sense of righteous anger and a sense of holy disappointment. Ultimately, I think Jesus is asking rhetorically, if you can't see God in me, then what sign could I possibly give you to show you otherwise? Would you like me to turn water into wine? Because that was like one of the first things I did. (laughs) Would you like me to multiply food? Because I've done that twice. Would you like me to bring back someone from the dead? Because I've done that as well. Do you want a sign, Pharisee? Listen to what I say. (laughs) Watch what I do. Their demand for a sign is nothing more than an expression of their unbelief, which is the problem that Jesus has identified in their hearts. The Pharisees, as we see time and time again, are unbelievers. They have closed eyes. They can't see. But the reason for that is because they have hard hearts. And then abruptly, it seems like in verse 13, there's a sort of plot movement, which that is certainly happening in verse 13. But I think more than just plot movement is happening in verse 13. And he left them, got in the boat again, and went to the other side. There's this sort of abrupt leaving and going. It's kind of a chilling leaving and going. He doesn't grovel with them. Like some, some, of y'all, some of our Jesuses, in a metaphorical sense, would just argue with him, right? Because if he can make his theological point, by golly, they're going to figure it out. And he's going to say, no, 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 I'm going to argue with you until you see it. Some people's version of Jesus would do that. Other people's version of Jesus would just beg and plead and say, please, please, please let me come into your heart. Please, 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 please. But Jesus of the Bible does neither. He has um, shared with them. He has shared his life with them for, for some time now. They refuse to see, and he goes away. I pray that we will um, come to Christ in the day where he may be found while his patience abounds towards us. Verses 14 through 21. So if the problem of the Pharisees has been established in this chapter, in the previous few verses, then we begin to see that problem of the Pharisees even in the lives of the disciples. Verses 14 through 21, I've kind of subtitled, Watch Out for Unbelief. Watch out for unbelief. Now remember, in verses 1 through 11, or 1 through 10, or whatever, that Jesus has just fed uh, thousands more people. Now a lot of scholars would try to argue that these are, this is just a... a, um, sort of restatement of the same miracle. And that could almost be true except for one thing. Because when you read over the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, it's not hard to see why you would think Mark is just sharing the same story again for dramatic effect. Because it sounds so similar. Jesus has compassion on the crowd. They've been with him three days. They have nothing to eat. If I send them away, they'll faint on their way. That means they're a long way out. Same setting. 
how can we feed these people here with no bread in a desolate place? Like, you know, McDonald's is not very close right now, and so we're going to have to figure out how to feed them. So many things are similar to the previous feeding miracle that it's not a big stretch to see why they're too. And maybe we could have argued about that if Jesus doesn't say what he says here. They forgot to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. Before we see what Jesus says, basically, let's do that actually. That would not make sense to go back to it. That's what goes on in my head and I just gave you a window to that. Sorry. (laughs) Jesus says essentially to the disciples, have we not done this before and how many baskets do we have left over? Twelve. Well, we just did this again. How many baskets do we have left over? Seven. And so essentially Jesus is confirming that these are two separate events. Now, verse 14, this is comical, right? They had forgotten to bring the bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. So here are the disciples. We have just fed thousands and thousands and thousands. I mean, everyone from, you know, Pakistan through Palestine and over to, the North, to North America at this point has had bread. I mean, thousands and thousands of people have been fed by Jesus multiplying this food uh, through his disciples to the crowds. But yet, here come the disciples. They're leaving. They're stealing away. They've had this little encounter with the Pharisees. They're going. They get on the boat, and they realize, oh, no. And we forgot to stop at Sheets back at that one exit. And now we're on some highway in West Virginia. And only the Lord knows when there's going to be another gas station, right? And so they get out on the boat and they realize, oh man, we forgot the bread. And so I wonder the bickering that starts. My theory is that Judas forgot the bread. I can't verify that, but uh, I think it isn't a huge stretch to make that jump. Um, they forget the bread. And y- so the, here we are. We see this sort of dichotomy developing. Jesus is, 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 the disciples, rather, are focused on these physical things, which when we get hungry, we focus on physical things as well. And Jesus is seemingly still processing this encounter with the Pharisees he's just had. He says in verse 15, he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven. Your translation may say yeast. Beware of the leaven. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus is still working through what's just happened. He's saying, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Because a little bit of what they believe can get into what you believe, and it can jack up everything you believe. He's saying, watch out for that leaven. What is that leaven? It's unbelief. Watch out for unbelief because it'll begin to sneak in. It'll creep into your worldview. And all of a sudden you'll start questioning little things. And before you'll know it, you'll be in a deep depression because your whole life's foundation has been ripped out from under you. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of Herod. Perhaps self-sufficiency. All of these things would be inclusive in this idea of the leaven of Herod. So Jesus then is making the spiritual point of, man, you know, I was just with these guys, and this is what they're struggling with, and, and now I'm with you. And, and guys, I just want to encourage you as my people, don't be like them. Don't let your hearts grow hard, because if your hearts grow hard, your eyes are going to grow bad. And when your eyes grow bad, you won't be able to see me. And when you can't see me, you can't be conformed into my image. So be careful. Please, guys, be careful, and don't become like them. And verse 16 is... Great. They begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. (laughs) They begin discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. So the disciples are talking about bread. Jesus is making a spiritual point about bread with a bread metaphor. All they hear is bread in the metaphor and say, still ain't got no bread. (laughs) That don't help the fact that Judas was supposed to pick up the bread, but, but he didn't. 
but he's going to do something else pretty dumb too. And so it doesn't help the fact that they don't know what's going on. And so uh, Jesus is aware of what they're saying, and I, <laughs> he asks them a series of questions. Why are you discussing that you don't have any bread? Like, uh, well, because we don't have any bread. Like, uh, really. Don't you understand? Sadly, no. We don't understand. Is your heart hardened? Uh, sadly, yes. Do you have eyes and not see? Sadly, yes. Do you have ears and not hear? Sadly, yes. Do you not remember? Apparently not. When I broke the five loaves for the 3,000, how many baskets did I have left? Twelve. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large basketfuls did I have left? Uh, Seven. Don't you understand yet? No. No. They still don't understand. Jesus isn't shaming his disciples. He's instructing them sort of in the, the way of a first century rabbi with a series of questions not meant to just tell them the answers but to to lead them to obvious answers you're worried about not having enough bread and in essence Jesus says do you not remember what just happened we fed thousands of people and how much bread was left over 12 baskets we fed thousands more people how much bread was left over seven baskets. These numbers 12 and 7 are extremely significant, right? They represent completion, fulfillment, and, and uh, sort of a totality that, that the Lord says, I have multiplied very, very little, and I've made very, very much. You've just seen me feed thousands of people with a couple of loaves of bread, yet here you are having a panic attack in a boat with me about the fact that you don't have any bread, They, the sin he's trying to warn them about, they're in the process of committing. The sin he's trying to warn them about, they're in the process of committing. You've seen what I've done, Jesus says, yet you still doubt what I can do. How many times do I do this? How many times do, do we do this? We see what he's done, but we doubt what he'll do. A little bit of unbelief can creep into our hearts, and a little bit of unbelief can cause a whole lot of spiritual damage. A little bit of unbelief can quickly become a whole lot of unbelief, and the battle of the Christian life isn't to be doubt-free. The battle of the Christian life isn't to be perfect. The battle of the Christian life is the fight for faith. It's the fight to believe that God in Christ is for us, despite what we may think, feel, or do. I think of Romans chapter 4, verses 20 to 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do as he had promised. Fully convinced, speaking of Abraham, that God was able to do as he had promised. Am I fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised to do. Luke one thirty seven reminds us that nothing will be impossible with God. Finally, verses 22 through 26, we see the process of sight. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man, 
by the hand and led him out of the village, perhaps away from all the sources of unbelief around them. And when he'd spit on his eyes, interestingly, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, don't even enter the village. These verses are like a visual parable, in a sense. This is historically true. It actually happened. Jesus actually meets this guy. He actually spits on his eyes and tries, and one doesn't try to heal him. He does heal him, but he does it in stages. He does it progressively. And this theme that has been especially prevalent in this chapter, but really throughout the entire book of Mark, this theme of sight begins to be appropriated spiritually in this guy's life with very, very physical pictures. This guy is going to be healed in stages. Like his healing in stages, the disciples are going to come to understand who Christ is through a process. They're not going to ultimately get it immediately. We know that to be true. Next week is a really important week in the narrative of Mark. There's going to be a big sort of profession and proclamation about who Christ is. and The disciples are going to begin to get it a little bit more. But it's not until Jesus has been crucified and resurrected that clarity will come to the disciples. There's a spiritual lesson here for us. Each of us, in some form or fashion, are on a spiritual journey. Yes, broadly speaking, there are two categories of people, believer and non-believer, but we are flesh and blood people walking through real life with real thoughts and real questions. And it's important to remember that we are all, in some form or fashion, on our own spiritual journey. But on your spiritual journey, let me encourage you and remind you that you're not going to ultimately get it until you look at Christ through the lens of his death and resurrection. You're not going to understand who Christ is. You're not going to understand why Christ matters. You're not going to understand his implications for your life until you see him through the lens of his life, his death, his resurrection. In the physical passage before us, Jesus and the disciples come to Bethsaida. A cohort of people bring a blind man to Jesus for healing. He takes the blind man by the hand. He spits on his eyes. He lays his hands on him. Do you see anything more than before, but not as much as I'd like? This time he lays his hands on him again. He restores his sight. Everything is clear. Next week, Peter's going to say, who are you, Christ? You are the Messiah. You're the Messiah. They're going to know who he is. They're going to be able to see a little bit, but it's going to be almost like people who look like trees, right? It's going to be a little foggy because something is going to happen that's going to wreck their worldview. Something is going to happen that's going to almost destroy their faith. Their Messiah will die. And when their Messiah dies, all hope will be lost. I think about Peter when the clock is running out on Christ's life. Are you with him? No, 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 I'm not with him. Are you with him? A second time. Him? No, I don't think I've even seen him before. I don't even follow him on Twitter, honestly. Are you with him a third time? No, I'm not with him. Jesus will die. Jesus will be raised to life. 
After Jesus is raised to life, he's going to appear to all of his disciples. He's going to appear to a big crowd of people, 500 some people over a period of 40 days. He's going to be ascended. And finally, that same Peter, the same one who in these moments of doubt was like, yeah, yeah, nah, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. He's going to stand up on the steps of the temple and preach to thousands of people. And 3,000 people are going to respond. That same Peter is going to risk life and limb to take the gospel to the nations. Because when we see Christ for who he is, everything changes. The same Peter who denied Christ boldly before the resurrection preaches him boldly after the resurrection. Because this story, this gospel, is good news for blind, ignorant, stubborn people like you and me. There is hope that just like this blind guy and just like Peter, when we understand Jesus through his life, death, resurrection, when we respond to Jesus, not through skepticism, but through faith, not through disbelief, but through belief, that even he can begin to change even us. I have good news for you if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian today. Well, in this case, it's good news if you are a Christian and, and, just, and not, not, not so good news if you're not a Christian. What you see of Christ today is not all that you'll ever see. What you see of Christ today is not all that you'll ever see. Believer, this is the best news for you. Because for you, this means that you may live in complete obscurity for the rest of your life. The psalm we read this morning was perfect for this idea. People might revile you, man. They might see you coming and walk the other way. Everyone in the community might think you're the worst person in the world. But when you die, or when Christ returns, and you're in Christ, you'll gaze upon his face. You will see Jesus one day. What an incredible truth that is. A non-believer, you will see him as well. You won't see him, though, in such positive light. You'll face him as judge. To be judged according to what you've done instead of what he's done for you. But here's the good news for the non-believer. God can soften the hardest of hearts. God applies his grace most lavishly where his grace is most needed. And that if you will turn to Jesus, he will soften your heart. And he will replace your blind eyes. And he will give you eyes. And for a while, it might look like people are trees. But one day you will know fully just as you are fully known. Believer, I pray that though your vision may be blurry, you will not stop looking. That though your vision may be blurry, you will not stop looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. You've seen this God spiritually speaking. Where do we see him? Where do we see his glory? In his word in his word, that is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible is unique, not simply because of the many ways that we can trust it, but the Bible is unique because in it the glory of God resides for the world to see. We're going to approach the table, uh, worship team, if you guys would like to go ahead and uh, lead us there. We'll follow you momentarily. 
we take communion every other week. Um, it's a, I think, a central part of, of Christian worship. has been for 2,000 years, and it will be until the Lord returns. In fact, it will be after the Lord returns. Because when we take the supper, uh, we look three ways. We look back right, to a real moment in a real place at a real time. When Jesus of Nazareth lived and walked the roads that man walks, when the Son of God, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, he lived and he died a real death. And when he died, as our second song sang today, How Deep the Father's Love, when he died, he, he took the punishment that we were due on himself and satisfied the wrath of God. And he rose again triumphantly over death, defeating sin, defeating evil once and for all. We look back to that moment. We look around at the visible effects of the gospel. This community shouldn't exist. We shouldn't be in the same room with one another. But we are because Jesus is alive. We look around at the effects of the gospel. And finally, we look ahead. We look ahead to the day when our sight will be made whole. Though we see dimly right now, we will see fully then. Though we often are tempted to look through the lens of our circumstances and our temporal pleasures and temporal struggles and temporal joys, then we will look fully and behold the glory of Christ. We will be seated around the table with all the saints who have gone before and with all the saints who will go with the Lamb who was slain. So this table is a visible representation of the gospel. This table is a proclamation that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And because those things are true, the table is for Christians. Because if you're not a Christian, you're not going to proclaim Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So if you're a believer, uh, we invite you in just a moment to join us at the table, uh, to partake of the bread of Christ, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, the, cup, the, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. I'm going to pray for us, and then after I pray for us, I will dismiss you at the table. If you're a non-believer, you can, you can stay seated, you can walk up to the table and look at the elements and uh, you can even pretend to take one if you are, are insecure, but you're safe here and no one's judging you. And if you are a believer and you're mired in unrepentant sin, I ask that this week you would take a, a break from the table. Not that you've made a mistake, but if your heart is hardened and you refuse to repent. Let's pray. Father, you make the blind to see. I'm thankful for the gift of sight that you've given me. I couldn't see because my heart was hard, but you've replaced my heart, and now I can see. But sometimes even in my seeing, and my vision's not 20-20, I don't see things the way you see them. I don't see things the way they are. I see them as I want to see them or how I think they should be. And so, Lord, in these moments, I pray that you will remove the things that cause us to lose focus, but even more than that, that you wouldn't remove those things, God, necessarily, but that we would see you through those things, that our focus would not be physical, but our focus would be spiritual, God, and that we would live in response to that truth. I pray, Lord, that you would 
grant the gift of sight in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.